can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it playing around. Welcome to Breaks and Dishes podcast. We- That's my breaking dishes. My John, podcast. John, we have somebody to do that for us. <laughs> I, I always forget that. We're high budget now. <laughs> yes, we are. We are have been doing this now for, we've got at least 12, 13, 14 episodes. I can't even keep count anymore. Yeah. I think we're over 16. We're, we're unruly teenagers. We are becoming experts at this. (laughs) I don't know if I go that far. All right. You're right. Okay. So today, and we, we've had a number of firsts and today we have another first. Our guest today, Patrice Jones, is an actor. We haven't had an actor yet. He's also an activist. And one of the things I love about my podcast job, and yeah, John, I'm calling it a job, <laughs> is that we Ouch. get to I know, is that we get to meet not just amazing people doing amazing things, but people with real passion who've merged their passion with what they do. And I always intrigued by that because I'm trying to make that work for myself here. These are people who really, uh, they don't just say they care, but they actually do something about it. And Patrice is the perfect example. He is a successful actor and he could be doing just that and have an amazing career. But one day he woke up, it took a pile of water bottles to do it. He'll tell you that story in a minute, but right then and there, he wanted to do something and he did it in a big way. He talks about a just fight. He says that he'd be more excited about winning an environmental award than an Oscar. I already told you about this right? Yep. I think Patrice epitomizes an activist. I mean, he, he literally activated, which is so cool. Yeah. 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 Well, we're excited to talk with Patrice today. John, should we get started? We should. I, I, I gotta tell you too, Verda, I absolutely fell in love with Patrice, not just because he's got, you know, a great voice and a really cool accent and because he's really good looking, but I think that he is, he is one of those authentic actors that you and I seek out. He's the real deal. Like he, I think what really strikes a chord with me, Verda, not to get into the episode yet, but He talks about self-esteem and how it's connected to consumerism, which I think is an amazing conversation. I don't want to let too much of that cat out of the bag, but I'm really excited about this episode too. So let's let's drop the mic and let's get going. Right before you spoil it, John. Let's go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, Patrice. Welcome to. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Welcome to Breaks and Dishes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you were just telling us about podcasting. You're, you yeah. hosted the first season of 52 Hertz. That's cool. And you had a team of six people? So it was Mindy, Emma, and I think it was four. And then okay. a couple of other people who I didn't kind of have too much contact with. Yeah. Okay. So it was, yeah, it was, a whole, it was a whole thing. Did you find that you kept getting better at it and better at it? What are the tricks? Like, what was it that... <laughs> Yeah, because I've ne- I'd never hosted anything. I'd never been like the host of anything, you know. So it was interesting for me to be, you know, to be on that other side, asking people questions and learning how essentially like journalism works and, and interviews work. Where you, when you see something, hear something, someone say something interesting, more interesting than your next question, you go, okay, let's go, let's go in on that, let's let's figure that out. And 
and ask people how they felt and what it meant to them. And like, that's when you get like the good stuff. Um, so it was learning one, how to shut up was, uh, was a, was a big one is knowing when it's like time to just go be silent so they can continue their kind of thoughts and, uh, and really hear them just get their things out of their head. Um, and, and just find out what the most interesting subject is, which I don't think you get when you, I'm sure you guys have a list of questions right now, but we may not, we might do three of them and then, and then find ourselves having a conversation and go, Oh, this is what the podcast is really about. So that was the kind of the fun part is like trying to find the way to do all the, do all the other stuff and talk about what this was really about and then tie it back to the overarching subject of the, of the episode. That's great. Well, we're only two people actually Dune. We interviewed Dune yeah, right? yeah, early yeah. on at your um, boss, I guess. Yeah. So, sort of. I, was, Not uh, really. I mean, I guess so, yeah. CEO, <laughs> CEO of the Lonely Whale Foundation. Yeah. And she let us borrow James Riley. So yeah, I was going to say, yeah, James yeah. is the man. Yeah, James he's doing man, our yeah. sound. Yeah. He's great. Yeah, he's yeah. awesome. He's a great guy. And he's um, he's Emma's. So Emma also, uh, well, she just left, but worked at Lonely Whale. Um, and they're, they're brother and sister. Yeah. James, James and Emma. Oh, oh, I didn't yeah. know they were related. That's, that's oh, wow. funny. Well, you know, yeah. the, better, the better you get at it, and I guess – you know, you have, you had six people, which is, which is, it sounds like a lot, but the better you get at it, the more effortless it sounds to be. Yeah, for sure. That's, and, and that's the key. So yeah. How have been, been going then? We started in September. Okay. So you're yeah. relatively new. Yeah. yeah. Relatively new. A little after you guys. Now, yeah. I, how did, now, it's a big commitment for you to host that. And how did you get involved with or meet the Lonely Whale Foundation and commit to podcasting that? So I had initially just kind of developed a relationship with, um, with Emma from Lonely Whale just started. I think, I think we first met over Instagram possibly. Um, And I obviously have, I'm working on a social social enterprise myself. So me just getting in contact with businesses and nonprofits and stuff and just establishing myself in the space. Um, I'm an actor by trade. So that's like my world, that's my bread and butter. And then coming into this world, kind of having to learn everything and meet everybody and, and just become a part of this environmental movement and the space. So, uh, yeah, got in contact with Lonely Whale and, and Emma and I just built a really good, just a friendship. Um, we talked a lot and, um, and you know, we expressed many of the same opinions on ideas. And, and I think she found me to be quite, you know, articulate in that sense. And I think that's kind of how it came about. Um, I'm, I'm quite sort of, stern about my opinions and, and stuff and stuff like that. So I think that uh, it kind of resonated that way. We've done a couple of things together. I'd, I've done a couple of things. I went to uh, Seattle to help them do a campaign um, with Alaska Airlines um, and a couple of other little bits and pieces. And then Mindy, who's now just started working for Lonely Well, reached out and they were like, you know, we, we're doing this podcast. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you involved and host it if you were ready and willing. And you know, it was it was actually really tough because I have um one, I'm doing my acting and then I also I'm CEO of a business. Um, you know, and we're you know, we're a startup and just getting off the ground and all these things. So between that and moving probably about eight times, seven or eight times between the time I started the podcast and when I finished it. Um, oh, wow. it was it was it became a lot more testing. I think every it was everybody's first podcast except maybe James, who obviously works completely on the back end. So we we went in with this kind of slight blindness and going, we're going to go in and we're going to, you know, figure it out. And Creative naivety. Yeah, 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 complete creative naivety. 
Um, but the team were amazing. They 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 just brought it all together, um, and they were able to find the stories in in these people and what it was really about, um, which I think is a real it's an art and a science. So they asked me to come on board, and I was thinking, okay, cool, twelve episodes. It's twelve like twelve hours of work. Right, right. <laughs> Knock that out in a month. Oh uh, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And they thought they could do it in a month, and then obviously things just don't unfold like that schedules and planning and just getting things right end up taking like four and a half five months to do to do 12 episodes and between that time i'm setting up new studios in in cupboards uh trying to make it work you know so like lining lining like cupboards with pillows and and stuff so it was it was an interesting thing for me but uh, and it was testing at at a certain point i was like god i was like i got so much stuff to do and but i care about this and they need me to get this done um, like, can you do this interview tomorrow? We're really sorry. This someone's schedule changed, and I'm like, oh. uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. great. It's a great podcast. It's so professional and, and such, good, such good content. Now, and so you you're saying that you were starting your your business at the same time. The one movement, yeah. Um, so we started that in mid mid to late uh, 2019. And we just took us a little while getting off the ground. And, um, and yeah, so that was kind of like my sole focus and um, just building out the team and, and getting this thing out there into the world. Um, and I'm a first time entrepreneur. So it's, wow. you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, um, I'm of course happy to delve into, into one movement a little bit more. Oh yeah. We want to hear lots more about it. Sounds like you're yeah. about to ship your first bottles out, right? Yeah. So we've actually, we had a little bit of a delay, just the COVID stuff. They, um, they like everybody else, trying to get shipping done. So it's a few months now for our bottles to finally land in our warehouse. And then we can start into our sort of traditional e-commerce, you know, selling, selling bottles and hopefully creating a lot of, a lot of impact through, uh, through some of our social work that we're doing. That's, uh, uh, let's, yeah. maybe, let's maybe back up a little bit. I want to, I always want to know how people get into like how they shift from just, well, you're, you've never done anything ordinary. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, you went from, from dancing and acting, which you still do, to environmentalism. Like, how did that journey happen for you? So I guess it's kind of twofold. Um, firstly, I think my understanding of, of the world began to sh- really shift in my like, late teens, early 20s. And this idea of becoming a part, being a part of it rather than kind of, it was kind of the way we describe the world is like there's nature and the plants and the animals and the trees and the waterfalls and all the nice natural things. And then these like barren humans that have just been sort of dropped on top. Um, and we're not really a part of the whole, the whole system, um, which nothing else doesn't make any sense. You know, there's nothing pointing towards that other than a, a certain high level of consciousness, I guess. Um, so that was one of the things that kind of didn't quite sit right with me. And, and from a philosophical standpoint, I had to spend time getting over, um, which kind of means, trying to find ways to get in touch with nature uh, and make sure that I was, I was right in my thinking that I am the same as a tree or a star or what have you. And then that kind of unfolded into when I'm, when working on set to take it really far back to the start of when I moved to America, um, I had moved to LA in 2017 to start my career uh, in America. I'd already been in England and I'd already been working a, a, a bit and realizing there wasn't enough stories to tell about people that look like me. So I was like, you know, I got, I want to make some money. I want to start my career. I want to really do this right. So I went to America and was lucky enough to book a role 
in a lead in a TV show like a week after I got there and then moved to Atlanta. Uh, so I was living in the South. Coming. It took you a whole week. Yeah, a whole week. It was really oh tough. <laughs> Typical Hollywood story right there. <laughs> no, to be fair, it is it's a real, uh, it took me a leap of faith um, to go and, I had to go and raise money to move out to America and kind of approach that in an, entre- an entrepreneurial way. Um, and then I was, I was doing my grind in England for, you know, five, six years before that. Um, and then I got there, booked this, booked this great role, moved to Atlanta. And then I don't know if, you, I don't know if where you guys are, if you have spent much time in the South. Atlanta's a great city. It's a great Atlanta. city. It's a great city, but the South is, uh, n- not one for their emphasis on environmental practices to say the least. <laughs> mm. So you know, and I'm from a country where we're not like amazing at it. England's not amazing at it. We're certainly better than if you had to compare us to America per capita, but um, we're by no means um, pioneers in the space. But coming into Atlanta and then working on set and seeing at lunchtime just dozens of trash bags just filled up already. And none of them go, none of them get recycled. None of them go anywhere. It, after a while, I started to just, I just started to notice it a lot more. And a big one of them was plastic bottles. There's a lot of plastic bottles floating around set because, you know, a set can go through for like 200, not even 200 people, over 100,000 plastic bottles in a season. I kind of saw a bin for, it was like a moment where I saw a bin full of plastic bottles and I was like, this is ridiculous. No one's paying attention to this. And then in my sort of cast chair, I'd look down and seen that I had like four plastic bottles sitting in, in my chair that were mine that I drunk. And I was like, oh, this is like a bigger problem than, than I think I'm kind of allowing myself to, to see. And, and this is just a couple of years ago. This is three. Yeah, this is in 2017. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. So I'm. I'm yeah. So there's this kind of my my thinking in this in towards this kind of space is that even though I'm slowly making strides in the acting space, I have I haven't paid my dues in the in the environmental space just yet. So I'm kind of doing the the groundwork, like boots on the ground, meeting everybody, talking to everybody, entertaining everybody. You know, some people are really got things going on. Some people don't, but you have to go and talk to everybody to find out. And I'm kind of doing that and trying to absorb as much as I can. So I can kind of use my platform a little bit more effectively. And through this period of, of three, three, four years have become ex- more excited about, you know, winning an environmental award than I ever would be about an Oscar now, you know, and it's kind of shifted my whole, wow. my whole statement. yeah. Um, so it's exciting for me and it's kind of an honor to be a part of this, you know, this, this fight, if you, if you will. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not really, there's no other fight I can imagine myself fighting now, you know, or anything you could be more honored to be a part of um, something that we all know that we believe in and that we can stand behind and no one's making you do it. You know, no one's sending you off to a, every generation seems to have their own war, you know, and people get shipped off to war and fight for things that they don't understand against people who never did them no harm or anything like that. Um, and this just feels like a very just fight to be fighting, you know. Mm. So I just feel honored that I kind of got in when I did to really start paying attention to these things. Well, it's 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 almost like the a, a dichotomy to acting. You know, acting is such a superficial exists and i don't i'm not saying it in a derogatory manner but acting is yeah, such come a on. Come <laughs> on, please. Don't hey 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 you know acting is is you know it's it, it is you're putting on a ruse you know and now what you're talking about what you're telling us about right now is is so substantial and uh, and authentic yeah so absolutely that's- it's um you often if you 
if you come into Hollywood without being prepped as well, you're putting on a ruse on camera and off camera and that can be soul destroying. So getting into Hollywood, you know, Hollywood being the, the place in LA, seeing how people were affected by the industry there and knowing that my mind didn't quite work like that. I wasn't kind of rooted in insecurity and that wasn't my sort of, wasn't where I lived. I didn't live in anxiety and, and insecurity all day. And that's, that was the first thing I noticed when I got there. It, it kind of smells like insecurity. Uh, <laughs> people, everybody's worried. Everybody's nervous. Um, yeah. Hanging out about the next thing coming around the corner. I didn't, I don't live like that. So in this movement, there is, a, there's also a lot of anxiety, you know, but people turn that into action. Um, and it's, people are thinking about things that are bigger than themselves. And it's nice to be a part of something where you can also take, you don't have, doesn't have to all be about you in order for you to make a difference. Um, and, you know, in the acting game, often you find yourself, it, the focus, especially as an actor, you have to, the focus is on you because, you know, this is my, this is what I sell, you know? So it's just an interesting change to be able to, to back people and be like just today, before I got on with you guys, I've been doing a, uh, with a, a campaign called Reclaim Our Time with Wild Wild Get Through and Black Girl Environmentalist. What they have essentially done for Black History Month is put a young black activist, environmental, intersectional environmental activist with a, a platform, whether that's a company or, I don't want to say celebrity because I, I, <laughs> that's not what I call myself, but or someone with a platform and hopefully just give them some exposure and, and shed some light on their story and the work that they're doing. These, you know, these young people are actually like out there, boots on the ground, trying to make things happen. Um, so I got a, a beautiful young girl called Dominique Palmer and I was able to just, you know, she took over my Instagram. So she sent me a bunch of posts and I put them out um, and it's all about her and her work and what she's doing and what she's working on and how she sees the intersectional environmental space and, and what it's like to, be in this space from the perspective of a young black girl. Um, and it's just really cool to see and cool to be able to go, to be able to shine that light on someone. Um, and it doesn't cost me nothing. It's not hard. You know, it's a day of my Instagram. Like I don't really care about Instagram so much. It's not something I really monetize or anything like that. So uh, it's, it's fun to be able to give someone a big opportunity yeah. with very little work. So what are you, what are you learning? What are you learning from her? What is it that, what's your takeaway? Um, that's cause that's such a unique experience. To yeah. Um, so I actually spoke to her for the first time yesterday and we jumped on a call. Um, one of the main things I learned is that she, she, like many others are really out, like out there. She's going to conferences, she's doing this, she's doing that. Um, and she's having an opinion in rooms where, where her opinion isn't typically valued. Um, and where it's typically very white and very uh, commerce-centric and um, and growth-centric metric, you know, how we – and there's a lot of talk. What I learned from her, actually, she said there's a lot – you go to these conferences, there's a lot of talk. And then at the end of it, we're all there like, so what's the plan of action, guys? What's the – what are we doing? And they're like, no, we'll just get to the next conference. And, and they're like, well, what's the fucking point? <laughs> here then if we're not, not going to do this, yeah. you know? Um, good for her. Yeah. So she says she's frustrated. It's a frustrating thing. She said that that kind of methodology, like the conferences and the talks and stuff could be quite frustrating because you don't see the kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of the kind of output and action that we're all waiting for. It's not called climate thinking. It's climate action. We need to pay attention to that. And listening to some of these, these people from different demographics and different backgrounds is really important for understanding the localized depiction of these problems. Um, and not just just a global sense, because the global 
picture of these problems is made up by multiple communities and multi- multiple areas. So we have to consider them all separately in the same way that we politically have different countries, uh, all culturally different and all have a different approach to climate action. We have to approach that in, this, in much the same way. Yeah, I got on the climate bandwagon pretty late myself, about a year and a half ago. And it's because of all the wildfires. Now that you're in California, you're going to be experiencing them. Right. No, he's not. He I'm moved. Right now, but, um, yeah, I might Wait, where my- are you? I'm in Toronto shooting uh, season two of Lock and Key. Oh. Yeah, but I might be back in California soon with uh, with my wife. Oh, how cool. Okay. Well, so that's a good place to be, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I love now, that. yeah, and I I love Toronto. Oh, how cool! Thing. Well, well, it's just as well because the fires have been horrible. And last, really? last a year and a half ago, they got really um, out of hand. Yeah, I I finally woke up and I and every day since I every day I do something for climate action and um, yeah, it, awesome. it's hard to feel like you're doing enough or doing anything at all, really. But I think the more people, the more businesses. The more startups, I think government and other business worlds will. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Right. And you're not the only one, you know, um, some one of our early investors uh, lives in California and um, he's a producer and he's a great guy. He's one of my closest friends was in the wildfires as well. Like he, he was in L.A. when all this was happening and he's a big he's a big producer. And was like, what can I can I do more to help? You know, he's like, I've invested some money, but like, how can I do more? Like producing movies is great but the world is literally burning, physically burning down around us and I want to do something. So you're not the only one who's going, oh, this is also my job to, to step up and, and be a part of it in whatever capacity that I can. Um, yeah. It is really important. Yeah. Well, it's listening to you talk about your experience with Dominique uh, it reminded me of our conversation with Chad Nelson, Verda, who runs Surfrider. Okay. And he has something called Surfonomics. And he uses uh, an economic study locally to show a community how valuable surfing is to their local economy and uses that as a motivator to get them behind preserving their their beach, preserving their their ocean front. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's what that's what you're talking about is. Having and you know, I think Air talked about it a little bit too. We talked to Air Copeland, uh, who was very fascinating, a uh, black man who's an activist. He's a surfer, and that you know, you have to get the perspective. It can't just be this all white movement of people that are out Absolutely. there. And I think even more, even more than necessarily just race, it's um, understanding different takes on the problem um, because. The, you can be a you can be a, a boy who's grown up in a rich white neighborhood um, and have a completely different take on on what envi- the environmental movement would be versus if you you know if you're if you're still white but you're poor um, and you know and you understand how survival of the everyday life plays a factor in whether you even have time to think about the bigger picture. So it's not just so inter- to me intersectional environmentalism isn't just about the intersection between. I think it's often coupled with the race and environmentalism is kind of they're coupled together but i think it's the multitude of problems and this is what it obviously is really defined as it's the multitude of problems that we that we face in this world and how they interlink so whether you're a surfer trying to protect your beach um or uh, you know or you're 
stopping landfills overflowing into your neighborhood, it's still around single-use plastic and, and, toxic, uh, and toxic water and stuff like that. So often the, the problems are the same, but they're affecting different areas uh, in different ways um, or often in the same way in different parts of the world. So, you know, it has, we kind of have to take a reverse engineering approach to these problems and go, cool, where does it start in my community? How does it get there? And then find out where where that plastic's coming from, or you know, or where why these these things are happening. Um, kind of like you know, when you go to the doctor, you don't go in and get surgery; you go in and get a diagnosis to really understand what the problem is. Um, so, if you want to cut a cancer out, you need to know exactly where it is and what it's what it's made up of at this point. Um, so, but eventually, there's no there's only so much diagnosing you can do. You have to start taking action, um, which is why talking to these young people who are like let's do let's just do something like we're we're ready for the change in the world that we might have to deal with um and that's why i love i love young people so much i say young people like i'm not one of them now <laughs> but like I'm, I'm not like i'm a full-blown millennial and there's a full generation behind me behind you, yeah. and, and yeah. I'm, we're no longer i'm no longer the next generation right and i'm saying this to dominique uh yesterday that now we have i have to do a better job of listening to them than the previous generation has done is listening to us. They wait, people wait too long. We have to force them to do things rather than hearing them as they speak. So, cause they have in, uh, intuitive ideas that we just can't think of because they grew up in a new, they grew up in a world that we, we didn't grow up in. Um, so I think that's one of the skills is going, how do we pay more attention to our young people? Um, even when you're, you know, as young as, as young as I am. So, uh, I, I think hopefully we'll do a better job of that in the next 10, 15, 20 years as these Gen Zs and those, the trans millennial Gen Zs, you know, come up in the world. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's another name for him because, because uh, Dominique is on the cusp between Gen Z and millennial and yeah. Yeah. There's another name for it. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully we do a better job of paying attention to these things and going, okay, this is why we need to take action. Well, I do think your one movement is geared towards young people, which is great. Yeah. I've got two, two bottles in my queue. Thank you so much. Yes. That's so kind of you. I really appreciate that. Oh, that's yeah. really Thank you. Tell, tell us more about One Movement. Yeah. So One Movement was actually birthed out of that story that I was telling you. I was in the South working on this show and realized that plastic bottles were just polluting everywhere. And then uh, booked another show up here in Toronto. I was working on Lock and Key season one and realized it was much the same problem. So it was kind of like, I'm done shouting about this. I've tried to get the, them to, you know, switch to better bottles and this, that, and the other. And they, and you know, they just, it sort of comes down to the bottom dollar. So the mentality came for one movement came from, how do I make it easy for people to do the right thing? Physically easy, financially easy, and just lower that barrier of resistance because that's one of the things we have to kind of make it mainstream. I got together with my business partner, Jade, and he, you know, he's been around the, the block when it comes to businesses and uh, I was like, I want to start, I think I want to start a water bottle company specifically for populating film sets. That was my goal. My goal was to populate film sets. And then quickly that translated into seeing that there's a much bigger problem out there um, because the goal was always to give water bottles to film sets and then use some of the proceeds to create an impact on some of the problems we'd already caused. So from there, we were like, oh, we can actually create a straight up e-com play and actually use this money and start creating impact. Um, and the film set stuff will come out of that. From that, we developed the the kind of the overarching philosophy for the one movement, which was, you know, the one being we're all one. And this this movement is requires us all to feel as though we are together. Um, and also that a lot of things you only really need one of. 
you don't need 2,000 water bottles a year. You just need one. So that was kind of the, the, the main philosophy for it. Um, and now when we launch our website, it will be for every dollar spent on the, on the website, we'll, we're able to remove uh, the equivalent of a pound of plastic from ocean-bound waterways and then transform that plastic into construction materials to build houses for the homeless waste collectors. Because there's a there's a whole big story that yeah. knows about, and I can get more. I'm happy to get more into that as well. Yeah, yeah, I want to yeah. hear a little bit about that. We were talking about that. It, that's that uh, plastic that's at LDPE. Yeah. yeah, not to get too scientific. We decided we, yeah. we didn't want to make this a scientific episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited just in general because I don't know if you know our backgrounds, but I'm an interior designer. Right. I do office, I do office design. Right, and, right, right. And in my own firm, I've been. Well, one of one of the things that I've been doing for climate action is trying to retool my office or rethink how we approach building. It's right. turning out that architecture and building, the building industry is a huge polluter and a huge contributor to yeah. carbon emissions, like 40% or something like that. Part of it is the heating of the building, but part of it is the embodied carbon of the materials itself. Right. And uh, we've got a couple chapters that we're working on, but the one I'm really excited about is how you actually think about design in a different way in terms Inception, of yeah. economy, uh, reusing, saving. I was reading this amazing article by, um, I can't remember the guy, but he's at Perkins and Will. It's called Reversible Design. The idea is right. that you build something that you can, that is able to be taken apart and infinitely rebuilt into other things. Ah, and reversible I, design. Yeah, and my, my designers are thinking, well, I don't know, this might be just way too hard of a concept. But then I was thinking, but what is weirder? Do you think it's weirder that we now build, like in this contemporary era, we build so that the, our buildings don't last more than 20, right. 50 years. And and none of it gets reused. It all gets torn out of this big pile. It gets hauled away in a dump truck. Like what's weirder, right? Yeah. yeah. And in the past- well, Look at the interiors. Look at the interiors, oh. right? How often you recycle the interiors. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, point. That's, what, that's, the, that's the point that- uh, a, a magazine called Metropolis Magazine. I don't know if you know them. That that they're trying to make the interior the right. interior design industry might might have a bigger impact than architecture because of how much turnover there is. But uh, I was thinking I was in Tibet a couple of years back, and I was in I went to this um, really amazing nomad experience. They're really into the horse culture there, and they had this big right. horse festival. And we st- we spent some time in one of their structures, and it's right. built all out of carpets i guess for lack of a better word these carpets are passed down from generation to generation and and mended and woven and yeah and and re-mended and reused and then they they fold them all up and and move on to their next thing so i'm thinking about architecture i'm I'm starting to think about architecture it's a mentality it's absolutely a mentality yeah. Cultural. Yeah, exactly. cultural. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd said this before. I'd said um, when I was working on 52 Hertz, I'd said to someone that the the impact of a product doesn't start when you, you know, the life of a product doesn't start when when you buy it and then finish when you throw it out. It start, It doesn't even start when you make it. It starts in the inception of, of, the, of the creator who did or didn't care about how and where it was made and, and, and what it was made from. Uh, and if you don't care about these things, there's no way you can create a good supply supply chain um, when it comes to considering the environment because you haven't it hasn't been there from the inception. You haven't you have to hack away it all again um, and start again. 
So, uh, and equally, if you don't think about where this could end up, and if there's a, pro- as a, there's a program to, to give it new life, then it, you're not able to achieve, you're starting off on the wrong foot, you know, mm. the onset. So that is a, and it's, and that's a mentality that we've been bred with, which is we get to do what we want as long as we recycle. And mm. we now know that recycling is the bottom of the list. Recycle is like one step before landfill, you know, mm-hmm. so understanding that and understanding that that's a mentality shift that we have to go through. And it is weird to people, you know, wrong. Like it is weird to be, it's not when you break it down, you go, it's actually less weird to reuse something than it is to throw it away. But we've been so conditioned uh, and ground down through, through, you know, even through PSAs, you know, the, in America, did you ever see the, uh, the PSA of the, the native American, like walking on the side of the road and the guy throws the trash out of the, yeah car. and then it's, it's like an old litter yeah an old litter commercial yeah, exactly and then it's about recycling it's not about don't litter it's not about uh the, the emphasis is on is on recycling it's rather than reusing what you have in your home and not buying things you don't need and this for me like stems into a com- whole conversation around why consumerism is the way it is you know i'd love to get i'd love to get into that or i can happily take it back to one movement <laughs> yes consumerism is yeah. that's consumerism that's the culprit again, yeah. right so again though if you take it back to deep again you know with that same mentality and thinking about the inception and going okay cool if it's about consumerism let's try and diagnose consumerism where does it come from um it comes from marketing and then how do you how do you market to people who have everything they need who believe they have everything they need, you can't. So mm-hmm. what they do is they, from I feel like honestly from birth, they, they find ways to systematically steal your confidence and give you insecurity for free. And then they sell you back shadows of, uh. of your self-esteem. You can afford to pay for it, you know? Wow, yeah. So Brilliant. And, and that's it. The richest people can afford to, can afford to the most self-esteem fulfilling things, that, but they're never inside of them. So... And that's what adequacy is when you have self-adequacy. And for me, when I say like, I say that if, if you wait, if you're a good person and you always do right by people, it is your, it is your right as a human being. And as a, as a part of this world to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and like the person looking back at you. And as long as you're a good person and you choose to do right by people, nothing and no one should be able to take that away uh, unless you let them. But what happens is we give that piece of ourselves away so quickly and so cheaply and you can't really, it doesn't come back so easily. So people are always looking for the quick fix. They go, cool, I'll get the car. And that made me feel better. You know, that whole thing, I'll cry in my Ferrari. Because you realize that it doesn't make a difference. Like I, I had the opportunity to make some money in the last few years. It didn't make me, it gave me more time to think. Give me anything else. I, didn't, I don't think I bought, you know, one thing that was like, that was to make me feel good about myself in that way to feel like I was plugging up a hole. Um, yeah. And well, maybe your success gave you the freedom to find this new yeah. direction, I, I, which now I feel so I, I, John, I think you're right. I think that through driving through putting the emphasis and the driving force on things that weren't about me necessarily about me myself um, has allowed me to just get outside and get, get over myself and don't get me wrong, I've got insecurities. We've all got, everyone on this call has insecurities. We let our insecurities get the better of us when we try and buy a way out of them. And that's when you know you're kind of lo- losing it. Retail therapy is not a real thing. You know, <laughs> um, the, very, the very nature of that, that sayings like that is, um, yeah. is divisive against, 
against our nature as as people who deserve to like like ourselves. So now these little girls, when they want to go and hang out, they don't go and hang out at uh, at the park. They don't go for a hike. They don't go for a walk. They don't go and play tennis. They go to the mall and they buy something. Yeah. Um, so so it's, it's deep rooted and it's it's structural. So if you look at around the world. It seems to be you can everywhere you look. Everybody wants to be the thing that's rare. So so often there's black girls want to lighten up their skin tone, and the the lighter girls want to be darker. Um, you know, billion dollars of industry, skin creams and bleaching pills yeah. and straighten your hair. You got, stuff you got like a small that. butt. You're supposed to have a big butt. If you're big, you're supposed to be skinny. <laughs> because if you you can't pay you can't pay for something you already have. So you have to show someone something they don't, and then make them pay for the transition it's been slipped under our noses for years and it's and it's marketing it's all it's all it's all commerce for better or for worse so i think diagnosing that is really is really key and going oh i actually don't need this and this is why because i love myself and it comes down to self-love and not even in like a wishy-washy oh we should love ourselves like if you actually love yourself life will genuinely be better because you don't need to buy as many things to or do as many things to fill that gap it's not just commerce it's People, some people, it's sex makes them feel adequate. You know, having many sexual partners. Some people, it's being in the gym and spending hours and hours working on this little piece of muscle just here and make them feel really, you know, <laughs> everyone has their thing. And it's all kind of like advice. So that's, just, yeah, that's the way I, I see it. <laughs> that's so well said. And I, I totally agree. We have to change consumerism and, and just how we market people. And yeah, yeah. it's insidious. I want to hear more. Well, oh, good, good. No, you go. Subject. You go, Verda. You go. <laughs> I want to hear more about this house that you built. In yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we launched the uh, the One Movement and the One Bottle on Indiegogo uh, late last year during the election of all times, which was fun. Essentially, for every bottle that someone buys, we're able to remove the equivalent of 44 pounds of trash, which is the equivalent of 2,000 single-use plastic water bottles from ocean-bound waterways in Mangalore, India, and we have a team down there uh, with Plastics for Change Foundation who actually turn that plastic into bricks and construction materials, and we build houses for these homeless waste collectors. Um, because as I was saying, the big piece of the missing story is that all the people doing this vital work, and they're the last, like, they're the only real line of defense stopping ocean plastic, is picking it up and, and turning it into something of value. But all these people are homeless. Uh, there's hundreds, thousands of homeless families picking up our waste essentially and waste from around the world that gets illegally dumped there oftenly they recycle it and they try and create a supply chain of of recycled plastic that is strong and durable and has all the properties of virgin plastic and the reliability because that's where the instability comes from is that there's no reliable chain for high quality recycled plastic so people just go to virgin plastic but people doing this truly vital work are living in like genuinely some of the worst conditions in the world in the, they're living on the landfill. On, the landfill, on around next to it, like it's insane. But they, you know, they managed to make a business out of it and do something with the with what they've got. So, you know, the our, our goal is to essentially build 100 houses for these 100 workers that work for Plastics for Change um, Foundation. And we just built our first house. It has uh, running water, electricity, uh, locks on the doors, and like these people are living in tents and stuff. So it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to see that. And there's a family of five living in there. So for us, like for me, like that's like my pride and joy. I look at that house every day. Um, and to see oh, yeah. that's something that we, we did that. We were able to do that for them through 
you know, and we and our and Uber and our customers were able to to make that thing happen. That's what the one bottle represents. It's a, it's a story of how doing something good for you, for yourself and for the planet will also be great for another person and their family. Yeah, our goal is to build these 100 houses on this you know this plot of land and start a small community for these people where they, where it's safe for them to live. You know, um, so that's kind of the part of what we're what we're doing, and then. We're going to move into other other stories that we want to tell, other sort of untold stories in you know beyond single-use plastic, and we'll expand our product range to to incorporate uh, other products where there's exceptional amounts of waste, but uh, could easily be done with a single-use with, with a singular product, same as a water bottle versus plastic water bottles, um, and then start talking about soil and and other and planting trees and all these other kind of forms of uh, climate breakdown that, that are we're seeing finding ways to help people go, I want to help contribute to these kinds of stories um, and make a, a tangible and measurable impact. So everything we do is is measurable. So if you go on our website and you've spent $138, you're going to know that you've removed 138 pounds of plastic from ocean-bound waterways. Um, so it's kind of rethinking. Metrics are important. Yeah, but but taking the metric off the money as well. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not a hater of money. We all need money to, we've, we've decided that this is the currency that we're going to use is, is, is money. Um, rather than bartering um and you know we we're going to use that to we're going to just change the kind of way we think about it is you know everyone always thinks about gdp when we talk about success of a country but not the happiness and all these other things so if you can go oh i've okay i've spent 138 dollars but i've also had all this impact and i can see that um showing people the kind of impact they have hopefully inspire them to do more and go further and yeah and just create more sort of everyday activists I think it's it's fascinating. I don't know if you've ever heard the statistic that once you make $75,000 annually in income, what you make beyond that does not increase your level of happiness. Yeah. You have to get to 75. Have you ever heard that? Um not not necessarily 75,000, but I think I completely understand um, and can attest to there's a there's a cap. Yeah, somewhere. absolutely. Because I, what it is, once you go past the bare necessities, it's what you were saying before. Yeah, you're just you're buying self esteem. Exactly. And literally last night, my wife and I toasted to. It sounds so funny. We toasted to running water because you don't realize how many people out there in the world don't have running water. And I don't know if you've ever had your water shut off for a day. And it's the bloody worst thing in the world. You're like, what am I going to do? I have another watch. It's already seven o'clock. You know, and and you know it's coming on at six yeah. pm, yeah. but it, it's just like ru- it ruins it ruins everything. And to think that you don't have running water all your life, you realize when you lose certain things like that. And we we call it all the time taking things for granted. When you lose things like that, then your world truly changes. If your fourth Ferrari breaks down or gets impounded, like your life doesn't your life doesn't change. You have to kind of ask what really changes in your life. And we're all culprits of taking things for granted. I think. I, you know, I'm able to, I just got married and I'm able to split my rent with my, my missus. And now we have a really nice house for a while, while we're out here in Toronto. And when we moved in, it was just like in awe constantly of, of this house that need, people like us would never have the chance to live in, but we work very hard. And then, you know, months later, you catch yourself kind of normalizing it. Um, and when you do that, I'm like, oh, wow, no, like this isn't normal. This is insane to be living in a beautiful house that you can afford to pay for yourself. You should sit back and, and take appreciation for it. And gratitude is always kind of at the heart of 
everything and, and needing less when you're really truly grateful. Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> It's good. It's good. Well, the uh, house the house yeah. did for in India for that family was gorgeous. It was absolutely yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And, and the look on their faces was just it, precious. Yeah, it was it was absolutely. it was special. It meant a lot. It meant a lot to me. Um and every time I talk about it, it makes me a bit like emotional because you know, I know I'm make no mistake about saying like I I've, I've been the driving force behind this and I can say that proudly, but I certainly no means am I the only person behind this. I have a great team of you know of six now uh pushing these things along but you know this really started from the idea that i wanted to kind of pull out into the world and materialized into this thing uh through the partnerships and the development but i know that i've if not even if this business failed tomorrow i know that there's a family out there who, you see it, who have a house yeah um, yeah I, well you pounds of plastic thousands of kilograms of plastic that i and i Absolutely. And I love the fact that it's a tangible, it's one, it's just 100 homes, right? right. You're starting with a very, you, know, clear, you clear. can start checking boxes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, on your website, I love the fact that, you know, you say that this is the most impactful water bottle, mm. you know, yeah. you, you can buy, you don't start talking about how it works or these, right. are the, these are the amazing features of this water bottle. It's not about that, it's, which I think is, about, is cool. It's about the story on your right. And, and that's, and that's the fun of it. And that's, I guess, what we're all really trying to do. We're trying to change the perception of why we buy things. And frankly, if we buy things. Uh, so that, that's our job. Our job now is, is behavioral change, not just, not just build hype on a product so someone impulse buys, but going, why am I going to buy this? And is this gonna, am I going to change something about myself because I'm understanding the problem? And that's why education is a huge factor of our, of our platform and of our business because we need to help people understand why they need to do these things and go, okay, cool. This is how you reduce your waste in this area. And this is how you reduce your water and CO2 emission. And here's the, all the ways, and here's all the products you can use to, to do that, that will actually save you money. Like I said, we're still a business and we still want to sell products and this, that, and the other. Um, but you know, our, as part of our mantra, we like, we never, we're never going to sell anything that is not a need based product, you know? So, um, you know, or doesn't campaign for something. Uh, so there's never any just for the sake of it products, which is, I think is really important in this day and age. There's every, there's so much stuff that we don't need, but it makes money, you know? So, so yeah, that's yeah. where we're at at the moment. We're just, we're getting ready to launch in a, in a couple of months, the official uh, econ website and we're working on an educational platform, hopefully, hopefully this year, maybe next year, like helping people just go through that process of reducing their waste you know that's i think you're right on target with that i'm ex i'm excited to to hear thank more you. about the educational component of one movement thank you yeah yeah and get out there and get some of these um one bottles one what is it called again the one, one bottle? bottle yeah yeah the one bottle so let's make sure we push that verda absolutely and um, thank you patrice thank you no thank so you, great to hear your story today i really appreciate Man. it and it's been a lot of fun, a lot of fun coming. I'm yeah. glad we made it work. I can't wait to see what else you do, what you do next. So glad I joined. Good luck. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Let me know when it's coming out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was so inspiring. And we yeah. we definitely did not overpromise and underdeliver. That was uh, yeah. He is no. uh 
He is every bit as fascinating as we pitched him to be at the beginning of this episode. I hope everybody who listened, I hope everybody enjoyed it and got as much out of it as as I did. It was inspiring, which which is cool. Yeah, and I want to watch the show he's filming up there in Canada, Lock and Key. Just because yeah. now I, I know him. I feel like I know him. I know. Yeah, and we could like, you know, now we know we could like stop by the set and be <laughs> oh, like, hey. Yeah, we're here to see. We're we're friends of Patrice. Uh, we're just here to you know eat some of this good catered food and hang out for a bit. That's, That's the right. thing. When when COVID lifts, Verda, we're gonna do a global road trip to visit all of the people that we've had on our show. Well, I love every one of them, so it would be a blast. And I'm looking forward to getting my one bottle. Hopefully, in the next month or so. And so, John, let's uh, let's just we haven't done this yet, and. Now that we're in our teens and on episodes, we're kind of thinking, let's give a little preview of the next episode. So we're going to be talking to Brian Kelly of Gathering Growth. And I wish that pictures came along with podcasts because another first, a photographer and his, the photos that he takes of trees is just, just mind blowing, breathtaking. It's like poetry on paper. And yeah. I don't know, what more would you like to oh. say to get our listeners intrigued to listen to the next episode? I have always been fascinated by trees. I think they're beautiful. I think that they're these big, gnarly creatures that have lived for hundreds of years and we take them for granted. We walk under them and we never look up at their branches. But I think where Patrice is an actor who said, I'm going to make a difference, Brian is a photographer who said, I'm going to make a difference, right? I think that they're connected. I think they're kindred spirits, these two. I, I absolutely agree. All right, folks, stay tuned for next week when we drop Brian Kelly's episode. Gathering growth. Yeah, don't miss it. It's going to be a, it's going to be a good one. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks. Bye. Bye, folks. Bye, folks.